Well, I've entitled this morning's message, Keeping Christ in Our Christmas. And it is a message intended to have us walk away with just that intent. And perhaps as you came through the doors this morning, it's been your intent already. And all I will do is reinforce that intent. Uh, or maybe there's <clears throat> a variety of ideas of, of what you might do, what I might do, what we might do collectively to celebrate Christmas. It's my hope to touch many things about that this morning. Scott, could you turn it down just a little for me, please? <clears throat> it was 1984, I read, when 37 of the most well-known musicians uh, in the world at that time got together and formed a band called Band Aid. And they wrote a song, maybe some of us who are of that generation, they wrote and recorded a song that said, do they know it's Christmas? And the recurring uh, chorus line in the song was, uh, do they know it's Christmas all day? The band included such artists as Paul McCartney, uh, Phil Collins, uh, Jody Whitley, Cool and the Gang, Bono, and others. Some of those names might ring a bell. And the song was created, recorded, and then put out into the consumer uh, to assist a famine that was going on in Ethiopia at the time. And it's interesting because a lot of the world, the secular world at that time, like awoke to the fact, oh, there's, there's trouble elsewhere. There are hardships. There are nations going through difficulties. But the fact of the matter is, is that winter celebrations of Christmas and other things have been going on for a long time and have in fact been worldwide. Uh, Kwanzaa, celebrated by those who uh, are seeking to commemorate uh, African history and uh, South African history. Bodhi Day, I don't know if I pronounced that even correct, but it was uh, brought into the Buddhist religion by when uh, their leader, Gatma Buddha, was supposedly enlightened on that day, so they commemorated a day. Of course, in the Jewish tradition, we have Hanukkah, which is a feast, uh, festival of lights, they call it, and it commemorates the time in the Jewish history when uh, in the temple, they had rededicated the temple after defeating the Greek army. And when they went to go uh, light the menorah in the temple, which was to provide light into the holy place, they found that they only had enough oil in the lamp for one day. And so they lit that lamp and miraculously the oil burnt for eight days while they prepared more oil. And so today, even 
this long forward in history, uh, the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. But the word means dedication. And once again, it is a reference to one dedicating themselves to God, not so much our understanding of what it means uh, or, or what the word Christmas means. Scott still seems a bit loud to me. I don't know, but thank you. Uh, my notes, uh, in 336 AD, by that time in human history, Christians had combined uh, a winter celebration. They didn't quite call it Christmas yet, but it was a celebration of Jesus' birth. And they combined it with uh, the Roman society that were celebrating the winter equinox and the festival of Saturnalia. It wasn't until about 1038 AD that the word Christmas was actually formed and brought to uh, society as we know it. It is, of course, a combination of two words, Christ and Mass. Uh, the word Mass comes from the Latin word uh, Misa, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which means sending or mission. And so uh, Christis Misa in 1038 became the Mass of Christ or Christ Mass. Think of that. Not until that point in time. Uh, during medieval years, of course, uh, in England, the celebration of Christ Mass brought on a, a variety of different kind of activities. Mostly it was involving revelry and drunk uh, drinking. There was one such account that Henry III uh, and his guests gorged 600 oxen at one time. The Germaniac Solstice Festival of Yule, we've heard the word Yuletide in some of our celebrations, uh, featured actually uh, uh, banquets. There were Celtic Druids that lit candles and decorated their homes with holly and mistletoe and gave uh, acknowledgement to pagan deities. Germany was also uh, responsible for what we now know as the birth of the Christmas tree. They called it Tannenbaum. Some of these words might be familiar to you and I uh, throughout the Christmas season. Oh, Tannenbaum, oh, Tannenbaum, right, okay. Or Yuletide, those sort of things, just to know where they came from. But here in the U.S., uh, uh, the celebration of Christmas really didn't gain any gusto till quite later in our inception. In fact, American Puritans banned Christmas in 1659. They wouldn't allow it to be celebrated. And they didn't lift that ban until 1681. And though there was, yes, some history of Christmas being celebrated after 1681, uh, it didn't, the celebration itself, what, what is so familiar to you and I this morning, Christmas, didn't really gain any gusto or forward momentum until the time 
of the Civil War. Because it was during the Civil War when we as a, a nation, brother was against brother, household against household, and the importance of family and home became so central to us as a people that it was during that period of time that Christmas became extremely important in our country. In fact, it wasn't until 1870, after the war's end, that Congress made Christmas the nation's first federal holiday. Moving forward in our national history, of course, our borders began to feel the influx of immigrants that would come from all, all kinds of nations to come to this great land called America. And as the winter season and the celebration of Christmas would roll around, they brought, immigrants brought, all kinds of varieties of ways to celebrate. And so we became, in, in reality, and uh, I loved you know, studying this and finding these things out, preparing for this morning, we became a melting pot of, of different ways to celebrate Christ's Mass or Christmas. Wreaths on the door, mistletoe above the header, banquets, holly, Christmas trees and whatnot. Someone once asked this question. They said, irregardless of the uncertainty of the exact time and year in which the birth of Jesus took place, and regardless of the many different traditions that have come to surround this celebration called the Mass of Christ or Christmas, how do you and I, a Christian today, how do you and I keep Christ in our Christmas? How do we do that? If we are such a melting pot of a variety of things that have a whole variety of origins, how do we keep Christ in our Christmas? A couple of verses that speak to me about this, and I trust they will speak to you, and that is the way we keep Christ in our Christmas is to lean on Scripture, is to trust the Word of God. And there are three that predominantly spoke about the differences of these traditions and whether or not they're appropriate or not appropriate. Are they pagan in origin or not pagan in origin? Should they be embraced by the Christian today or should they not be embraced by the Christian today? A couple of verses. First of all, Paul is writing to a young man in the faith named Titus, and he wrote this in Titus 1.15. Um, thank you. We have it. Uh, no, we have the references up there. So I'll read the verse for you. In Titus 1.15, it says this. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but even their mind and conscience are defiled. In Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, when there was uh, quite a conflict about various foods that should be eaten or not, Paul wrote in Romans 14, 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In his letter to Christians in the city of Corinth, and Corinth was a a wayward bunch of people, the people in Corinth predominantly. But there was a church there. There was a gathering of Christians. And Corinth was this seaport that, that harbored people coming in and out from all over the world. We, we look at um, various cities that are associated with um, revelry and, and different lifestyles, San Francisco, Las Vegas, that kind of thing. What was it? Las Vegas was even at one time called Sin City. Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, those would be about a 3, and Corinth was a 10. And so Paul, in his letter to the Christians, harbored in that, you know, very revelry city. He wrote to them in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, and he said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And when we put those uh, scriptures together, we again seek to answer the question, irregardless of the time of his birth and the many different kinds of celebrations, How do we keep Christ in our Christmas? Well, certainly if we were to take those verses as as a guide, it would mean that if something upsets us or in our conscience is associated with uh, an improper way to bring Christ into the Christmas, then we should not do that because our conscience doesn't agree. But by the same token, if someone else uh, believes that that activity or that way of celebrating or the things they do does help them to keep Christ in their Christmas, the one who does not is not to judge the one who does, and the one who does is not to judge the one who does not. It's a very personal decision. But without question, one of the things that should remain in keeping Christ in our Christmas is the acknowledgement of his name. Remember, we read it at the beginning of the service that she was to bring forth a child and she was to call him. His name would be Jesus. And we have that up there. Jesus is the Aramaic slash Greek rendering of a Hebrew word, which is Yah and Shua, a a combination word that Yah meant God, Shua, salvation. In other words, God 
is salvation. Jesus' name meant God is salvation. And the question becomes, uh, when the promise was that he would save his people from their sins, we, we point again ourselves to scripture and to a biblical understanding of Christ. Did it mean that he would save his people, meaning those of the Jewish lineage, from their sins, the people of a Jewish lineage? Well, you could interpret it that way. But the fact of the matter, the the more accurate interpretation goes with the full understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We're told in Scripture that all things were created by him and there was nothing that was created that was created without him. So that would include not only our world, our universe, but mankind. And so all of mankind, and I'm speaking probably to everyone who knows these things already, but all of mankind is included in that promise that Yahshua, Jesus, would come into the world and he would save all mankind from their sins. And that prompts another question. Saved from what sins? Saved from uh, moral spirals downward? Saved from ethical differences, saved from social ills, saved from political wanderings, or even relational failures? No. Because all of those things are only byproduct of human nature apart from a relationship with the God who created them. And sin is the word, is the missing of the mark. It entered humanity way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to not obey God's command and eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes were opened and they were naked and sin entered the world. We're told in the book of Romans that by one man sin entered to the world and by one man's sin will be forgiven. The good news of the gospel is that being separated from God and a relationship with God because of what is inherent sin uh, By the way, I'm related to Adam. You're related to Adam. None of us are not related to Adam. We came into this world and we have a relationship with our inheritance to Adam. But the way that sin is uh, forgiven, the way that sin is uh, placed as far as the east is from the west is in the person of Jesus Christ. And the question this morning for us would be, what does the advent of Jesus Christ mean to you? 
How has his coming impacted your life? There's history of his coming impacting the world. But let's make it personal. How has his coming impacted your life? And as we celebrate, as we embrace this tradition or that tradition or this thing or not that thing, the central thing becomes Jesus. How has he impacted your life? Does his impact on your life show itself in your daily living, in my daily living, in our celebration of his coming? So, I'd like to share with us this morning five ways in which Christ is seen in Scripture because keeping Christ in our Christmas simply means seeing Christ as he is in Scripture. Let me say it again. Keeping Christ in our Christmas is simply seeing Christ as he, has, as he has seen in Scripture. And so I'd like to bring five uh, ways in which Christ is seen. The first this morning comes from Colossians 3.11, and the verse reads this way, that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. What does that mean to you and I? Uh, there's been a phrase that has floated through Christian circles and church life for many years. Uh, goes like this. He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So if you've asked Christ into your life to be your Savior, have you asked Christ into your life to be your Lord? And as Christ is, becomes Lord or we surrender more of ourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, having received the forgiveness of sin, it is an amazing thing that as time goes on, he becomes all to us because he is in all. Uh, years ago, I, I taught on the subject of uh, compartmentalizing our Christianity. In other words, while well, I'm a Christian at church on Sunday, but then I go to work or I go to school and I'm, I'm just a citizen. But then I, I'm a Christian on Sunday, and that would be compartmentalizing our Christian, our Christianity. But no, uh, am I not the same Christian when I wake up on Monday as I was on Sunday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday? Christ is all and in all. One way that he is seen in Scripture. A second way that he is seen in Scripture comes from Numbers 21, verse 9. And the verse reads this way. So Moses made a bronze serpent 
and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Excuse me. The history behind that, maybe some of you Bible readers recall, that what had taken place is that the nation, the people of Israel, had come across the Red Sea, delivered from the bondage of Egypt. Can you imagine servitude all your life and uh, a slave and, and being forced to live under the whip of someone and, and when you don't do exactly what they want you to do, you only are credited with more stripes on your back. And if you were to complain that you didn't have enough resources to do what they wanted you to do, then they took the little resources that you had away and said, keep going. More bricks, no straw. And God came in through a deliverer named Moses, and he delivered those people from such a life. They crossed the Red Sea, and they hadn't been out very long, and they started to complain against Moses. Why did you bring us all the way out here? Oh, it was, it was hard, but it was okay back where we were. And what God had done to deliver this people was miraculous. I mean, Egyptians died. A sea was parted. A lamb was sacrificed as the blood of the lamb was put over the doorpost so that the death angel, when it went by, that Israelite's home would not bring death to that home. Miracles. And not long after witnessing all that miracle, it's like, why did you bring us out here? We all know how easy it is to complain. And so God became angry, and he sent down these fiery serpents to begin to bite the people, and many died, and as they looked around and saw that people were dying because of their complaining and complaining spirit, they went to Moses and they said, Moses, we're sorry, we've sinned against the Lord. And isn't that how it goes sometimes? I mean, when we find ourselves going in a wrong direction that we've chosen to go in and we knew the Lord didn't really want us to go in that and we went in anyway, that the consequences of that sometimes uh, are brought right in front of our face and we recognize, Lord, forgive me. And God's so gracious. He, those are two of the sweetest words to his ears. Forgive me. Because he's full of compassion and, and slow to anger and uh, full of mercy. And so there they are, you know, forgive us, Moses. Please take these fiery darts away. And so God spoke to Moses. I hope this, I'm not belaboring the point with you. You know this history, but it's great. God spoke to Moses and he said, Moses, make a pole and put one of those fiery serpents on it and stand it up so that the people can see it. And when they look at the pole, even if they were bit, they would live. What was that speaking of? It was speaking of a time in the future 
when the deliverer of all sin, Christ himself, would be placed on a cross and raised up. And those who would look upon that cross for the forgiveness of sin would live and not die. A brazen serpent. A third way in which Christ is seen in the scripture has to do with the branch of the Lord. Zechariah 3.8 Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my, branch, my servant, the branch. And here, if you have uh, various versions of the Bible, you will see that, um, and in our text on the screen, is that the word branch is in capitals. It's, it's not a thing, it's a person. And so it's looking forward to a time in which the Father, God the Father, would bring forth his servant, the branch, Christ. And what is, what is a branch? It is an offspring of the root. It is connected to the main thing. And so God would send himself in the form of mankind, God incarnate, we call it, that he would send Jesus, his servant, into this world. A fourth way that Christ is seen in Scripture, maybe familiar to many of you this morning, is he is seen as the bread of life. In John chapter 6, verse 35, we read, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Bread of life. Bread and the making of bread goes so far back into human history. In all cultures and lifestyles. Because the making of bread in every culture was a form of sustaining oneself. There were other foods, but bread, bread would become a staple. And so the bread in life, logically speaking, is a form of substance and staple for us to continue to live. It's food. And Jesus declares in John's Gospel, that he is the bread of life, true life. We can search and reach and scratch and work and educate and relate and go so many directions in order to try to find life and its purpose and its fulfillment but hear me, beloved, this morning, it's never achieved until that fulfillment is found in the bread of life himself, Christ. He's the bread of life, the one who sustains. 
lastly this morning, the fifth way in which Christ is seen in Scripture comes to us in a short phrase in 2 Corinthians 9.15. And I'll read the whole verse to you for us this morning because in its context, it's to me even a little more beautiful. Paul is writing to the Christians in that city of Corinth. And he says, in verse 13, he says, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. He then closes that statement with, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Christ, the indescribable gift. Perhaps that's one way in which you would keep Christ in your Christmas this year, Often Christmas is a time of exchanging gifts, right? You probably have some you can't wait to give and maybe some that you're hoping to receive. Someone once wrote this this way and we'll close with this. Uh, as Christmas time is a time of gift exchanging, some people judge a gift in three different ways. Some people judge a gift by how expensive it is. And as we think of Christ as the indescribable gift, and we think of the expense of the Father to give that gift, we are reminded that Christ gave his life the most costly of gifts. Some people judge a gift on how practical it is. Will it work for me here or will it work for me there? And we think of Jesus being sent into the world both 2,000 years ago and today. He still remains the one that can meet every need we have. He's a need-meeting Savior. But lastly, some determine the value of a gift on how personal it is. Uh, was that gift brought to me, given to me, purchased for me uh, because the individual knows me? And the answer in Christ remains that if you were the only person on the face of the earth, he would have died for you. Is that personal enough for you? It becomes personal enough.
for each of us. And so my exhortation this morning, simple but heartfelt, is let us place Christ in our Christmas this year. Let us leave Christ in our Christmas in the next. Let us keep Christ in our Christmases from this point forward until his return. Because when he comes back, there'll be no longer a waiting for him, but we'll be caught up in his presence, satisfied completely to be with him forever. Let's keep Christ in our Christmas. Will you join me in a closing word of prayer? Father, we thank you for giving the best of gifts. Jesus, we celebrate your coming and we look for your soon again return. And as we pass the gifts around this year, as we break bread at our tables, as we hug and enjoy each of the loved ones that come across our life path. May we be mindful to keep you in our Christmas. It's a work of your spirit. It's an intention of our heart. And we thank you for all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Do you stand and we'll close?